and I want to apologise for the glitch, but this is my first time, so any mistakes, then I can't apologise enough, but it happens. I do have with me my hero, <laughs> slightly, and I couldn't think of a better person to be talking to for the first show, which is Dr. Bill Warner. Um who is sitting there looking rather dapper, I have to say. I won't tell everyone that you're not wearing your dicky bow. I won't I won't tell tell on you for that one, Bill. <laughs> I don't use it for formal occasions. Well, you know, this is a formal occasion. It's my debut. <laughs> oh, okay. Next time I expect you in a shirt and tie. It's compulsory. Just part of the setup. I just Absolutely. need to know what to do. Yes, that's the thing. Now We'd, we'd sort of um, a few things that we want I want you to because we've only got you for an hour so I want to be able to enjoy that hour but I also want to be able to learn from that hour and some of the things that I'd like to talk about is first of all the history of Islam um, because obviously I, I know it's 1400 years old but that's really about all I do know with regards to the history of Islam so what can you tell us about the history of Islam well the history of Islam starts off with Muhammad and we have his. We have the first 23 years of history of Islam in a book called the Sirah, S-I-R-A, which is just an Arabic word that means biography. But the Sirah has, at least in Islamic studies, come to mean Muhammad's biography. And it's a fabulous read. It's uh, 800 pages of fine print. And his life story can be summarized, and we can return to him later, is he preached the religion of Islam for 13 years and converted 150 people to Islam. He then went to Medina at the insistence of the Meccans. They said, basically, get out of town. You're causing dissension. Whereupon he became a jihadist and a politician, and he committed exactly 100 acts of jihad in the last nine years of his life. Not 101, not 99. But when he died, every Arab in Central Arabia was a Muslim. So we have a religious history and we have a political history. And so that's sort of, and they're fused into one thing. But it was the political history that made Islam an outrageous success. Now when Muhammad died, even though every Muslim is commanded by the Quran to leave a will, Muhammad did not leave a will. Now this gives a problem because how, does we, have, how do we have the head of state and so they had basically a, an election, <clears throat> and the first man who was elected caliph, which is, caliph is like a combination of political leader and religious leader, we could say pope, king, was Abu Bakr. Now, Abu Bakr's first wars were not against the Kafir infidels, the non-believers. Instead, when Muhammad died, there were a whole lot of Muslims who said, well, you know, we've tried the, the Muhammad Islam thing, and that's been fine, we've enjoyed it, but now that Muhammad is dead, we're going to go back to doing what we were doing before Muhammad came along. And Abu Bakr said, not so fast, Arab boy. You will be staying in Islam, and if you do not, we will have war. So the first war of Islam was the apostasy wars, the Rito wars, to use the Arabic term. And after a few thousands of Arabs were killed, the remaining Arabs reached the conclusion, you know, this Islam thing is still working for us, so we're going to stay in Islam, and we will continue to obey the Sharia. Then, and only then, did Abu Bakr turn to the business at hand of conquering lands outside of Arabia. Now, here's something to be known about conquering. 
Muhammad at first fought the pagan Arabs, then he fought the Jews, and then he fought the Christians. His last jihads were all involved in fighting the Christians in Syria. Now he had to leave Arabia to do that. So Abu Bakr picked up where Muhammad left off, and he then started attacking the Christians. He did not live much after that, and a new man came on board whose name was Umar. Umar was to change the political face of the earth because he now had a unified Arabia behind him, and he conquered basically all of the Middle East and Persia and parts of North Africa. Now, this meant that there was a new political force walking the land. One of the reasons that they were able to succeed at this was that the Persians and the Greek Christians had been fighting each other for a long time. They had bad blood that went back all the way to Alexander the Great. So it turns out that there had been a war fought between the Byzantines and the Persians, and so they were in a weakened state. So Uthman got, to, not Uthman, but Umar got to attack a weakened classical civilization. Now, what this did was it subjugated the intellectual heartland of the Christian world, which was in Syria, which was Damascus. So this is the first part of the conquest that happened within, these men were companions of, of Muhammad. After Umar, who was killed by a slave, he was uh, then succeeded, succeeded by Uthman, who gave us the Quran. Now there's a little part of political history here that's interesting. What had happened was is that the Quran was a memorized document and there were complaints from the leaders that there were beginning to be disagreements over, well, exactly how did that verse read? One Muslim said one thing, another Muslim said another. So Uthman said, well, we will pull together all of the known variations of the Quran. And Zaid was appointed secretary, and he produced a new Quran. Now listen carefully. Uthman then burned all the source documents. Burned? That's interesting. Yes, now ask yourself a question. Why would he burn all the most ancient Qurans? Remember, the complaint was there was variation. Well, now then, after burning all the variant sources, there are no more variations. Lucky how that worked out. So now then, Muslims proudly strut their stuff to the Jew and the Christian and say, our Quran has no variation, whereas your Bible has variations and your Gospels have variations, so see, ours is better than yours. Funny how that worked out. Uh, a further sidebar is, is it turns out that not all of the variations were burned. It turns out there were some yeah, left in Yemeni, in a, in a, between the two roofs of a mosque. They found these, and these have been photographed, and it turns out that there were variations, which we now have pictures of, photographs. So this is just a sidebar in the history of Islam, but I think it's important to, in the history of Islam to give the history of the Quran. Well, after Uthman came a civil war, which created the Shia-Sunni separation. And one of my most frequent questions I get asked, Tony, is what's the difference between Sunni and Shia? Well, from the standpoint of the Kafir, which is what I study Islam from the standpoint of, not a lick of difference at all. They both are to subjugate the Kafir. They're both to declare war against the Kafir, jihad. But there are differences as to who should be the caliph, who should rule. The Sunnis say that any good Muslim can do that, and a good Muslim is defined as someone who follows the Sunnah, 
S-U-N-N-A, the Sunnah of Muhammad, which is to lead the life that Muhammad led. The Shia say, oh, no, 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 no. What we need is a caliph who has the blood of Muhammad in his veins. So there is the distinction. And there's also some other distinctions between the Sunni and the Shias, but they're not important to us. Now then, after Ali came a long series of caliphs, and then after that, uh, even furthermore, but I don't want to get too far off into the weeds there. Suffice it to say that Islam exploded out of the Middle East after Muhammad's death and conquered the Christian areas. It took them until the year 1400, roughly, to conquer the Byzantines. Almost off the bat, they started their first combat with Christian troops were Byzantine troops. I actually remember watching your video um, showing all the different... Um wars that took place and comparing mm -hmm. the size of the wars in comparison to the size of the Christian wars and um, yes. what they called the Crusades that everybody is duly regularly dragged over the coals for but the comparison was was uh, even I was absolutely gobsmacked because we don't get told that. I mean I'm not a Christian but even as a child growing up at school when we were taught about religion we were never shown that part of it it's almost as if we weren't supposed to know about it. You know, totally the whole thing that amazes me about my study of Islam is how much was not done. I felt like I was had an unopened, that I had found a tomb that had been unopened and everything was inside the little snapshot of time. This whole business of the Crusades, we're taught that the Crusades were of oh, some thug French knights who went over to the Middle East and disturbed the poor peaceful Muslims and they were just looking for turf and territory and they were nothing more than a, some version of thugs and it was an aggressive war against Islam. The Crusades were defensive. Let's go over the first part of what I told you. Islam invaded a Christian Middle East. That's how it all started. And the reason that the Knights of Europe went to, to uh, and by the way, one of the most famous crusaders was, of course, King Richard, the Lionhearted. I just suddenly remembered that. That's right. Which I think is the only thing we were probably ever really taught about at school, was Richard the Lionheart. And of course, that weaves its way into Robin Hood. It does, yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. Do, do, do they still let British children study the story of Robin Hood? They do, yeah. And and tr the trouble is Hollywood kind of took it, ran with it, and made it into something completely different to what it, we were taught at school. But yeah, you do still get Robin Hood and Dick Turpin and, and characters, but they don't really teach it so much at school now. Not like they did when I was a girl in many, many years ago. The Crusaders were defending a Christian world which the uh, Islam had destroyed. And so I put together that little battle map of, uh, to show the, how the, I call it a dynamic battle map, so you can sit there in time and watch how war spread the territory that was conquered. But you know, it, it is interesting. I produced a database of some 548 battles that Islam fought against the uh, classical world, I call it, because it was not only against the Christians, but it was against the Persians and the Buddhists as well. My question, and once again, I say, why is it that no one ever sat down and put together this database of all these wars? I'm not a historian. I'm a scientist. I have had, and I've been accused of that by some historians, well, you shouldn't even be allowed to talk about this. You don't have a degree in science. I mean, in history, I say, no, my degree is in science. But I've also had other historians write me and say, you, have no, you may not have been trained as a 
historian, but you were trained as a scientist and your methods are the same as ours. That is, you go to source documents and extract facts. So, so anyway, so there we have the spread, which I'm, we, we're collapsing now into a very short period of time, of Islam. It was spread with the sword, but let me point out something about how the history works. Today, Turkey is nearly 100% Muslim. The Christians did not disappear under the threat of convert or die. The invaders take over the government, and what they do is they put into place the Sharia. And the Sharia subjugates and denigrates the Christian, the Jew, the Buddhist, and whoever. So that they can't have any position of authority. They uh, don't have a position in court. And so you have so few rights that what happens, you become, you're called a Dhimmi, D-H-I-M-M-I. And it's degradation. If your daughter's raped, you can't go to the police and complain about it. The degradation that takes place over centuries causes Christians to convert because of the degradation and the humiliation, not because of convert or die. The same thing happened in Afghanistan, which was Buddhist, and Pakistan, which was Hindu. So I just want to make that point. Convert or die is not the way that Islam takes over civilization. Instead, it puts the Sharia in place and the Sharia subjugates the native population. Now that is happening in America now. Because what is happening now is, is that the Muslim Brotherhood is quite powerful in America, and the elites in America tend to be very favorable to the Muslim Brotherhood because you see they represent a minority. And in America, any grievance that's posed by a minority automatically wins, no matter what its facts, because it's all in America now about feelings. It's not about facts. So what we have in America is, is one of the primary things that our Constitution gives us in our Bill of Rights is the freedom of speech. That freedom of speech is being taken away somewhat on a rapid, sometimes month-by-month basis. Things that cannot be said, words that cannot be used. So we're now faced with an enemy in which the bullets and bombs part of the violent part of Islam is its spread of power is not nearly as important as the civilizational warfare, which means that Islam is given a preference in all matters now because they are a minority in a Christian nation so since they're a minority everything they say is right this is the way that the elites reason in the universities and in government so the new conquest is coming not so much through bullets and bombs but through a civilizational warfare and freedom of speech is one of the first things they attack I mean for instance in dealing with myself in America the CARE which is a civil rights organization I've Never come across with me. They just say that I'm a racist, hater, Islamophobe. As a matter of fact, I'm proud to announce that last week I was promoted to the inner circle of hate by CARE. Oh, that, that's a privilege in itself, isn't it? I always think that's an achievement when you get put up. I get that from Hope Not Hate, Tell Mama, um, and other organizations such as that. And they come out with the usual racist, Islamophobe, bigot, hater. Hater's always in there. And the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a leftist organization, has declared that I am one of America's top ten racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobes. Welcome so to I'm my world, Bill. <laughs> I'm in the top ten. So, but what this represents is, is a, here's the reason this is effective. Obviously, it doesn't shut me up. I'm here talking to you. But in America, most people are decent. And they do not want to be called a hater, bigot, racist, Islamophobe. So this shuts them up. They don't shut me up with these they make other people think, well, I don't want to talk like Bill because I do not want to be found to be a racist, hater, bigger, Islamophobe. 
This is civilizational war. Now let me say this, I'm an, an admirer of the Muslim Brotherhood. I despise them, but I admire them. Now if those two things sound contradictory, the reason I admire them is they are so good at what they do. The problem in America is, is that the Muslim Brotherhood plays to win and we're playing to tie. Now how's that going to work out? You have two teams, one's playing to win and the other's playing to tie, who's going to win? Well, so it, well, it's not going to be the tire, is it, really? I mean, there is no losers, so everybody doesn't everybody win in that situation, or are you saying that everybody loses in that situation? If you have two teams on the field, one's playing to win, and anything it can do, it will do to win, and the other one says, we're nice people, we don't want to beat anybody, we'll hold hands and walk across the finish line together. Oh, and sing Kumbaya. Sing Kumbaya, and everybody will be happy. Well, that's so, how it's gone for, then. Well, so that's how civilization, that's how we started out with a war of nothing but violence, but now then the war is with civilizational war. You have an experience of civilizational war, I think, in Europe. It's called Hijra, Islamic yeah. migration. Islamic migration, and unfortunately it's uh, in vast numbers. Uh, I, I actually got, was given some information the other day that in Greece right now there are 57,000 um, that have come in from Afghanistan and uh, Afghanistan and Turkey and Iraq and all these different places and they're all sort of gathered there and when you, the guy went out to talk to them and in, interview them they would talk to people and say well you know is there any ISIS or extra? oh yeah not like it was just the norm and when they said where are you trying to get to they all said England and you just want to go um, but we also have the other thing that you were talking about is this political correctness um, this fear of saying anything for fear of being deemed racist and then we have a government where we've got a, a woman called Theresa May who's actually now trying to become Prime Minister of this country after the Brexit who believes Sharia law or Sharia would be great for the UK I will say one thing about this woman and I've never met her she knows absolutely nothing about the Sharia I couldn't agree she more as an elitist <laughs> And I'm calling her an elitist. I don't know who she is. She's an, she's an MP. She's an elitist. And so, therefore, the, the elitist always gives the victim the prize. And so, since the, the Muslims are always the supreme victim, this means that she will favor them. So, she likes Sharia law. Uh, how is she about wife beating? Well, I think that you hit the nail on the head. She actually has no idea whatsoever absolutely none what sharia law and we've and yet we've got somebody as fantastic and amazing as um baroness cox who's actually trying to stop the spread of sharia law and she's absolutely an amazing amazing woman but you've got theresa may saying oh no sharia law is great for great britain and you just want to go have you never seen a woman who suffered sharia law clearly not well, it is astounding how ignorant, and yet she would look at me, me I'm, by the way, I've written a small book on Sharia law, which has been translated into 15 languages, and is, y'all have Amazon in England for book sales? We do have Amazon and eBay, and... Well, I've, uh, well it turns out my book on Sharia law is the best-selling book in, in Amazon's uh, Islamic law category. So, I know a wee bit about Sharia law. I would love to see this woman, woman spend just six weeks under Sharia law. Her husband can beat her when he wishes. 
Well, I think the truth of it is she, she's kind of played into this rhetoric of, uh, you know, Islam is a religion of peace. Now, we've come to, to understand, and I think you and I agree on this. I, I know many Muslims who are very peaceful people. But we mm -hmm. were talking, and we've said before about how it's, it's the way Islam is practiced. So it's whether they are Islamic. And, and I said, well, I believe that ISIS are Islamic. And I would say that all those people that people go, oh, well, that, that's a good Muslim. Actually, they'd be deemed as being bad Muslims because they're not doing it in its literal form, following it in its literal form. A Muslim in America means me. anybody who says they're a Muslim. Now, how they practice Islam is the question. A good Muslim is one who practices Islam to its fullest. That's a good Muslim. A good person is another thing. You can be a good person and not practice any Islam. But what a good Muslim is, is one who adheres to the Islamic doctrine. Therefore, the head of Islamic State, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, is a good Muslim, and he is a fully Islamic Muslim. He practices all of Islam. I know Muslims who never go to the mosque, who never fast, who don't do the prayers, and yet they are Muslims, but they're not it's very Islamic. So the question with a Muslim is not are they peaceful, but how Islamic are they? That's the main thing. So would you say that, because obviously you've broken down a little bit now, I've always been a bit confused about how we got so many different sects of Muslims. So as you said, you've got Sunni, Shi'i, Salafi, Wahhabi, Ahmadi, you've got all these different sects and I think half the public are kind of like how can you have so many different sects of Muslim and only one Islam? Which, now, am I Islam. right in saying that's to do with the Hadith or is that to do with something else? Let's define Islam which is by the way something you'll find that no one does. They like to talk about Islam but who has ever defined Islam? Well I'm getting ready to define Islam for you. It is the political, religious, civilizational, cultural doctrine found in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. And it's codified in the Sharia. That is what Islam is. The Sharia is what is found in the Quran. Everybody's heard of it, even if they haven't read it. The Sirah is the life of Muhammad. <clears throat> and the Hadith are his traditions, little, little things that he did and said. The shortest uh, Hadith is, war, uh, war is deceit. That's the shortest hadith. <clears throat> Others are more lengthy. They can, but typically they're a couple of paragraphs long. So the doctrine that's found in those three books is the Islam. Therefore, Islam cannot be uh, radical. Islam cannot be peaceful. Islam is a doctrine. It is what it is. Okay? Yeah. And that is what Islam is. Now then, people interpret that very different. That is, they look at the same piece of paper and make their own conclusions from it. Let me give you an example. In America, we have a government which is based upon the con Constitution. Now then, we have one Constitution. There's not a radical Constitution. There's not a moderate Constitution. There's not a... It's simply the Constitution. That's what it is. Now then, people read it and read different things into it. So Islam is the same. They read it and they read different things into it. They're all reading the same document but they come up with different conclusions. This is called being a human being. 
So there are many different variants of Islam because people read it and say, oh, this is the most important part, so we're going to base it on this. Here's an example. The Quran says that you're to pray three times a day, but the Hadith say it's five times a day. So here you have a doctrine which could be read either way. Which do you want to do? I think that most Muslims pray five times a day, but they could say, I'm just following the Quran and pray three times a day. Okay. So, and they wonder why people like me struggle to understand what Islam is and what Islam isn't. Now, I, that's a question I've heard many, many people say, what is Islam and what Islam isn't? What would you say it is and it isn't? What it is, is it's the doctrine found in Quran, Surah Hadith, the trilogy. That's what it is. What it is not is, is what is not found in the Quran, the Surah, and the Hadith. So it, um, it's almost like teaching a geometry class. A triangle has three sides. It's a closed figure with three straight sides. That's what a triangle is. And you can say, well, you know, those little pointy corners on the triangle might poke the baby in the eye, so we're going to round those off. Well, you now have another figure, but it's no longer a triangle. It's another shape. So when you take, you, you cannot change what a triangle is. It is what it is. Islam is what it is. It's what the doctrine found in those three books. If it's not in those three books, it's not Islam. If it is in those three books, it is Islam. So the, the answer to the question is almost like I say, a it is defined by the content of those three books. So if you had to come up with a, a, a way in which to, to combat what we're seeing with regards to ISIS, with regards to extremists, etc., what would you say would be, the, in your opinion, if you could magic it with a magic wand and make something happen, what would that something be? And for anybody well, who's... I've got you on live here, so they can't hear you. They have to go on the Our Eye on Islam app to hear you but they can hear me, but it just goes a live feed straight out onto Facebook. <laughs> so, you're smiling for the camera now, right now. Okay. So, so if the camera's looking at me, I should look at the camera again. The camera's there looking at you, so you should definitely be looking at the camera <laughs> and giving everybody so, a big wave. <laughs> all right. What I would teach anybody about Islam is, and for instance, you have this woman, do you say she's look, running to be prime minister? Yeah, she's standing, there's um, Theresa May and Andrea Leadsom, and they are both standing there. Because obviously we had the Brexit, um, right. we have a Conservative government, which means that, that of that Conservative government, we must have a Conservative Prime Minister. <laughs> so okay. you, they, they then have an argument amongst themselves about who will stand for election. <clears throat> and it's whoever gets the most votes amongst the members... And not the members of the public, but the members of the Tory party. And that means that we've now got Theresa May and Andrea Leadsom. One really wanted to remain in the EU, the other one wanted to get out of the EU. Theresa May is the woman who's standing now, could possibly be the future Prime Minister of this country, who believes that Sharia is a great thing, or could be a great thing for this country. What I would teach her is I would move from the Sharia being an abstract, thing which is like oh it's the it's the legal system of a religious minority so therefore it's got to be good what I would do is to teach her what is in the Sharia and I would teach her the same thing about things like Islamic State I would show her how Islamic State is exactly what Muhammad did 
So therefore, it, what Islamic State is doing is not radical. Let's take beheading for an instance. Islamic State has just issued a new uh, production describing its new governmental system. It ends with beheadings. Now then, are beheadings, if you ask the average person, are beheadings radical or extreme, they would go, yes, they are. But are they radical or extreme based upon the doctrine of Islam? Based upon the doctrine of Islam, they are not at all radical. If you're doing Remember, the Sunnah of Muhammad, what he did and said, defines what is right and wrong in Islam. Since he had people beheaded, he had 800 Jews beheaded in one day, there's a story in his life in which the head of his enemy is thrown at his feet and he laughs so loud you can see his back teeth. Beheading is pure Sunnah. Beheading is pure Muhammad. Beheading is pure Islam. So therefore, beheading is not radical based upon the doctrine of Islam. It is radical based upon your personal opinion or your Christian or whatever other liberal scale you want to measure it on. Let me say this again because people, I say this, they do not understand it. Beheading is radical only on your personal criteria. On the criteria of Islam, it is not radical. It is Sunnah. It was practiced by Muhammad. So therefore, what I would teach every British MP is that the true nature of Islam and how it is manifest in Islamic State, the true nature of the Sharia, which allows child marriage, polygamy, and wife beating, and female genital mutilation, these are all the things that come with the Sharia. So this woman, who I've never met and know nothing about, has demonstrated if she says she likes this, the Sharia, she's either a crypto-Muslim or she doesn't know a thing she's talking about. Well, she says not, not that she it. likes it, but she thinks it could be a good thing for the country because we do have, much like you have care, we have things like Muslim Council of Britain and we have many other right. organisations that are saying, you know, it's a great thing if, it, if it's practice, it's personal Sharia. They always want to make it a personal Sharia. For, for me, Sharia is Sharia is Sharia. The Camino so, one of the Therefore, under the Sharia... A man will be able to have as many wives, well, he can have four wives and as many sex slaves as he wants. He can marry a nine-year-old girl and have sex with her, all right? He can beat his wife, but not strike her in the face. He can have multiple wives. So these are all things, and he can divorce her by just saying, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Bang, she's divorced, she's out on the street. So these are the things that the Sharia is. Now, I ask England this. What part of wife, how much of the wife beating do you want? Do you want just a little bit of wife beating? Do you want just Muslims to be able to beat their wives? Or since they can beat their wives, shouldn't every Englishman be able to beat his wife? Well, can you beat your girlfriend as well? So the Sharia here, if you're going to talk about it, shouldn't you know something about it? That's all I'm saying. See, I, I totally agree, and I think that we brought in laws, you know, you can go back through our history and time, and we brought in laws that stopped men from being able to legally beat a woman. Now, I'm not saying we don't have stupid women that have not just, I mean, the first time I understand it, I've been in that situation when you're naive, but then you will get a woman who repeatedly will cover for the sins of, of the man who's doing it, but there are many women out there who beat men too doesn't make it legal that's the difference if you ring the police and you say that person has just beaten me they'll be arrested for assault so i, I totally agree with you prime minister wants is if a muslim woman calls the police and says my husband is beating me they go well that's his right 
goodbye. Is that what you want? For, is that what this woman wants for England? And if she doesn't what want she this, believes, why is she talking about she, because she we've got well, we've got Sharia banking in the country now. Uh, Sharia bonds are now in the country. Um, including Richmond House, where Westminster is actually moving over temporarily um, while West Westminster is being refurbished. And Sharia Bonds has been used to purchase Richmond House, where our House of Lords will be running from, which is a little bit worrying. Now, I can't... And the Shard is owned by Saudi. Um, I believe you'll find that Canary Wharf has now been built up by Saudi. So there's a lot of money coming in via Sharia and I think that's the reason she thinks that Sharia would be good for the good for the country it's purely well, because money Elite. well let's educate her some more about Sharia finance again by the way one of the things that I've learned is when I was young I thought people in authority had more knowledge than I did and so therefore they could make decisions and I would say okay well you know more than I do I'm a 75-year-old man who's now sitting here telling you that the people who are talking like this, who they may rule England, but they're ruling it on the basis of ignorance. Sharia finance pays the zakat. That is, there are seven uses for the Islamic tax. One of those is jihad. So what you're saying is, is that the English prime minister says, oh, we want to bring in financing which will finance jihad, jihad of the sword. Yes, that's what we want because we're kind, compassionate, loving, caring, I presume progressive, liberal, or whatever you strike to call it, the left version. Yeah, liberal. What we have is people Labour. talking about a subject they know nothing about, but they want to feel good. And if they pander to a minority, then they will be a virtuous person. You have the same problem in America. As a matter of fact, one time I did a essay called "The Higher You Go, The Less They Know," and this is my experience of the knowledge of Islam in America. The head of the FBI knows nothing about Islam. An agent on the street does. In the American military, if you've got stars on your shoulders, you're a general, you know nothing about Islam. However, the gunny sergeant who served two years of duty in Afghanistan knows a lot. It's the same wherever I go. The higher in rank you are, the richer and more powerful you are, the more ignorant you are about Islam. And by the way, the more bullheaded you are in terms of being educated about it, because since you're rich and powerful, you must know everything after all. If you're, if you're Mark Zuckerberg, who owns Facebook, then by definition you know everything and everything you say is right. And since I've been not as rich as Mark Zuckerberg, what could I know a man who's merely studied Islam for 45 years? And, and let me point out that I did actually put a picture out of Mark Zuckerberg sitting with the Saudi prince. So you kind of have to go, hello, are the alarm bells not ringing here for people? And whilst I... I, I don't think that all Muslims are extremists. I, I, I genuinely don't. And I think there's a lot of Muslim women out there suffering needlessly. But you can't help somebody who's not prepared to help themselves either. Um, but I do think that the average working class person is actually more educated where Islam is concerned than any of the elitists. So I totally get that. And I, if I... Listen, you could get what I know on a postage stamp in comparison to what you know. But what the elitists know is even less than I know. And that okay, is scary. Correct. You know, it's like I say, when I was young, when I was, young I was naive and I thought that, our, that the elites knew more than we do. And they may know more about some things than we do. But when it comes to Islam, I find that simply the elites know almost nothing. 
And what's worse is you can't drive it into their head with a ball bat. They're simply not going to listen because as elites, why would they want to listen to me? I, they're better than I am. That's demonstrable because they're richer than I am and they're more powerful than I am. Therefore, of course, they're better. That's the way the logic runs in America, at least. But Islam doesn't care whether you're rich or poor when it attacks you. No, but remember, the attack that is the most devastating is that of a civilizational nature, not that of a sword. Uh, it's, it's interesting. One of the more frequent questions I'm asked is, aren't you afraid? To which my response is, well, of course I'm afraid. You look like a damn fool. I think anybody who's looking at you right now will say you definitely do not look like a damn fool. Well, then therefore, of course I'm afraid. I'm not. A, I'm a man who does what he does, not out of my own well-being, but out of the need to protect a civilization which I love. Our civilization in America, which is the same as England, has two cornerstones it used to have. One was the golden rule for ethics and the critical thought for mental or intellectual world. But what we're seeing is, is that we're willing to throw the golden rule away and say, well, if you're a Muslim, you can beat your wife. What woman wants to line up to be beaten? And yet here we have a female prime minister who says, oh, well, we want to bring in wife-beating laws into America, into England. She doesn't know she's saying that, but that's what she is. Well, we're kind of hoping that she doesn't get elected, but knowing the elites as we do, unfortunately, that's the bit that worries me because it's not the working-class person that gets to vote for her. It's your elitist again that will get to make this decision against the better judgment of the people of this country, which probably seems to be something similar in America, where you have the, a similar sort of problem. Well, we have the same problem. I don't want to get off into the, into the weeds, as we say in America, or off into the ditch, but the popularity of Donald Trump with those for whom find him attractive is simply that he is, refuses to be politically correct. Yep. He's the most politically correct, incorrect man in America. Uh, he was at a, he was giving an interview and he was talking about immigration and there's something called anchor babies, which if, if you have your baby born in America, then you get citizenship along with the baby, anchor baby. So a newspaper reporter said, sir, that term is offensive. Trump looked at him and said, anchor baby, anchor baby, anchor baby, get over it. Well, in America, this simply is not done. You can't do that. Because much the same as you're offending a minority, which is an illegal alien. And so he says, I don't care who I offend, in the sense of if it's right, then I'll say it. And there are a lot of people in America, working class stiffs, who are a little sick and tired of the elites telling them what to do. And I think that England feels very, very much the same. England are, quite frankly, we're bogged down with political correctness now. We, we, we've really started to tire of political correctness but because we've been beaten over the head with the political correct stick for so long now whilst i don't believe in being offensive there's no need for people i i, I don't like people who put comments on about you know oh we should slaughter him and we should do this you know yeah. that that to me it doesn't make any sense you can step over the line of being political correct with incorrect without being abusive or, and not only that, it's kind of what's expected from us. They expect us to behave in that manner. And it, it feeds the left and it feeds those who want to use that against you. And by doing that, you're actually giving them what they want. I prefer to take away <laughs> what, what they want. Rather than giving them what they want, I will take away what they want from me. Well, I just, 
political correctness means no longer do you have free speech. Because political correctness, one of the first things it does is to attack the words you can use and not use. Let me give you an example. In America, law enforcement is no longer allowed by direct order in this state, by the order of the governor, this is the state of Tennessee, at the federal government by direct order of the president through his attorney general, the FBI, Homeland Security, and all these other law agencies are forbidden to use the word jihad, Islam, uh, civilizational warfare, uh, Ummah, Sharia. They cannot, it is forbidden to use these words. Now, why is this important? One time I heard an interview by a, a novelist had taken a young black male under his arm because he thought he had a genius for writing, and he educated him and trained him how to be a writer. Well, it turned out he was correct, and the man had a novel which was a bestseller. He was being interviewed, and he came from the ghetto, the black ghetto, so he was very poor, and he, but he educated himself through the help of this other writer. They said, what do you like best about writing? His answer stunned me. He says, as a writer, you learn new words, and you can think new thoughts. What he says here is, is that the thoughts we have have conceptions in them, and the conceptions are marked by words. And the mark of an expert is, is they have many words that they can use which have subtle differences in them. So what's happening in America is political correctness means that our law enforcement, which is given the authority to supposed to protect us, cannot use the language of protection because it is offensive to Islam. This is a very serious problem. It means we can't think right, we can't act right, and we can't speak right. I have a friend who came to America from India, and he said, when I came to America, I was stunned, not by the height of the buildings, not by the wealth of the citizens or the beauty of the women. He says, what stunned me was, he says, in America, this was 40 years ago, he said, people did something I did not know could happen. They told you what they thought. He said, as a Hindu, I never tell you what I think. I tell you what you want to hear. Yeah. He said, I must tell you that 40 years later, America is becoming a nation of Hindus. And that's the reason that I am who I am, is that I tell you what I think. That is, I'm honest with you. But intellectual honesty in America is no longer prized. Instead, what is prized is you never offend someone. Free speech is being redefined in America. I think it's it's been redefined here too, Bill. I mean, to be honest with you, free speech now comes often with a prison sentence. Um, You can't even say what you think anymore without... It's almost becoming... We've got thought police, basically. It's not like the thought police. It is the thought police. And I, I, I hit on a genius jackpot moment. What? I said I hit a hit on a genius jackpot moment. Uh, by the way, I believe the novel 1984 and Animal Farm were written in England, were they not? They were, yeah. 1984 was written here. I'm not sure about Animal Farm, but 1984 was. And we do live in the world of 1984. We, we literally are living well, and breathing well, the world. Just as in America, you have Newspeak. And you have words which cannot be used, or you'll go to prison if you, or lose your job if you say those words. So we now do have in America a thought police. Sins against the state are to speak freely what you feel and think. Unless, of course, you're the right minority. 
Now, in America, we have protected minority classes, and they can do and say as they will. As a matter of fact, the laws don't really apply to them. So, do you also this find is a violation of the concept of one law for all. In America, the idea was that we create a legal system in which all people were treated the same in front of the law. That no longer is true in America. There are now different legal classes, and they receive different kinds of legal treatment. It used to, the American motto used to be E Pluribus Unum, out of many, one. But now then, the new motto of America is out of many, many more. See, we, I, I will confess, I mean, I am knocking on a bit now. I am, you know, I'm not, I'm on the wrong side of 40 now. And growing up as a child, you know, it was instilled in me that certain things were acceptable, that you could say certain things were not acceptable. And I'm at a point now in my life where I kind of think, I don't really care if it's acceptable, if it's honest. Ah. But see, the new speech laws are honesty plays no part in it. Compliance is what it's about. Compliance to the will of the state. Big Brother cares a lot what you say, and Big Brother does not want you using the wrong words, or Big Brother will crush you. You will be punished. You will be punished if you don't please Big Brother. And by the way, don't criticize Big Brother either, because Big Brother loves you. Well, Big Brother stopped loving this country, and I think America, a long time ago. Um, and I think we've, we've now realized that. And I think that whilst there is still this divide, there is this left-right divide. If you have an opinion such as mine, you're deemed as being far right. I always look at it, I'm just not far wrong. <laughs> I have a question for you. Go ahead. I'm reading the European news. There's no such thing as right. He's not a member of the right. It's only the far right, the extreme right, the hard right, the Nazi right. Yeah. You're either, but the left, you're just left. It's not the far left. That's right. That's a hundred percent correct. Use of language. Although we do use that now, we do refer to him as being hard left. And you oh, see, really? I see myself as I, I'm centre middle. You know, I believe in, in in being honest. I don't think honesty is. I think honesty is. Um, it's not valued enough anymore. And if you're telling the truth and you're being honest and true to yourself and you're not out there causing anybody physical harm, I mean, let's face it, offence is taken, not given. And as I often say to people, if, you know, if you're going to take offence, well, take a gate. It weighs a lot less than offence. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I will say Bill's laughing. He quite liked that one. Um, and I do want to, to, to sort of reiterate, reiterate as well that go back five years ago, Bill, I, I knew nothing of Islam. I knew, I had experienced in my youth when I, I was living on the streets, I was attacked by Pakistani men and I was referred to as being white trash, white whore, etc., etc. But back then, there was no connection. It wasn't until Rotherham broke that I made a connection. And that's when I started to look up and, and look at things. And I have to say, that you were, which is probably why I have so much respect for you. One of the first videos I watched was, was one of yours and it literally grabbed me in a chokehold and shook me and said, what are you doing? Pay attention. And whilst it terrified me, it also made me feel slightly liberated and unafraid to say what I really thought. So in a way, I kind of, I owe you a, a thanks for that, I think. Well, you're quite... You're quite welcome. Even though yeah. since then I get death threats and I do blame you for them too, Bill. <laughs> do 
not really. <laughs> but I do think that we need more people. People do now need to, they, they've got to open their eyes. They've got, I mean, and like you said, Theresa May, she's not our Prime Minister yet. And Jesus, I hope she does not become the Prime Minister of this country because if she does, we are, that's it. It will be game over for a lot of people because we voted leave and, and there was a majority of 52%. 17 million people voted to leave the EU. And one of the main reasons that a lot of people, not all, a lot of people went on the finances and the cost of, of the EU, but there were a lot of people on the highest agenda was mass immigration. Mm -hmm. But if you'd have really pinned them down and said, what immigration would that be? They would have said, we don't want Turkey joining the EU. Mm -hmm. That would have been, if they were honest enough to not just say, well, you know, it's, look, we've got Polish and Romanian and Lithuanian and Italian and Greek and French and every kind of nationality in this country. And we've all got along swimmingly and no problems. If you really pin them down and said, now, can you really be honest? What immigration is it you're scared of? What frightens you? They will say, Turkey joining. You see, the reason is, and they don't know this, so I can't, I'm putting words in their mouth. But the reason that, I say, I'm picking this, a German in England doesn't seem extraordinary is, is that they share a civilization, we have a, I'll call it a meta-civilization. A civilization based on the golden rule for ethics, that is all people are to be treated the same, and then a, an intellectual principle of critical thought. They would agree with both of those things, and so therefore we're a member of the same large civilization. We speak different languages, and we may differ on many things, but we all agree on the fact that in front of the law, all people should be treated the same, which the Sharia does not. We all agree that fact-based reasoning should trump feelings. If it gets down to the hard, it, we need to be able to discuss the facts of the matter. And I think that Italians would agree with that, as do Germans and others. But in Islam, Truth is not determined by fact-based reasoning. Truth has only one measure. Does it agree with the Quran and the Sunnah of Muhammad? That is what truth is. Not experimental truth, but that is what truth is defined as. It is authoritative truth. That is, truth is determined by those who know the Islamic doctrine best, and they will tell you what is true and what is false. So, the they do not share a common intellectual basis, nor do we share a common ethical basis. Now notice my methods here. Am I insulting anybody? Am I calling anyone bad names? No, I'm discussing philosophic terms and pointing out how they drive and affect our lives. That is my method. But under Islam, my methods are illegal. And under Islam, my methods could cause me to lose my life. So that's the reason I don't like Islamic doctrine. And I say I don't like Muslims? What I said was, is I don't like a doctrine which says I cannot speak my mind. I do not like a doctrine which says there's no fact-based reasoning allowed. See, my, I'm, I'm sort of, as it were, a philosopher, really. Yeah, I would have said you was a little bit of a philosopher, if I'm honest. I would. <laughs> as well as being a quite a dapper chap, I would have referred to you as being a, a, a bit of a... Because nothing you say is... There isn't anything aggressive in your manner. It's just a very honest point of view. And I kind of get frustrated when people go, he's a hater, which you've had. Or he's a racist, 
He's a bigot. No. And if you took time to listen to the man, you wouldn't think those things. But we're at the point now where when you come out with those words, we're pretty much going to laugh at you because there's so little truth behind it. And the more they scream it, the more we have almost started to wear it like badges of honour upon our person. It is becoming that way. Well, I am proud to be called a hater, bigot, racist, Islamophobe. I'm proud of that. I worked hard to get it. Because what does that mean? What that says is I'm a dissident scholar. I'm a dissident who believes in critical thought. I'm a dissident who believes in the golden rule or unitary ethics. My belief in the golden rule of critical thought makes me a dissident. I am proud to be a dissident. Thank you. Well, yeah, I'm not sure what a dissident is. I mean, I'm not as intelligent as you. Um, There's nothing to do with intelligence. It's just that you and I share the fact that we think that the golden rule should apply. We should treat people equally, which Islam does not, the Islamic doctrine does not believe in. It clearly states that. And you believe that we're, you, you, you're a dissident. You don't have to be brainy to be a dissident. You just have to disagree with society. And I'm proud to disagree with society. So, because I left a message for you before you managed to sort of add me on Skype, I, I would like to get a copy of your book and I'd like people to know where they could get it. I take it your book, it must be on Amazon or there must be it's a way for Amazon. people to get your book. It's also uh, on my website, politicalislam.com. Uh, I have, uh, doesn't buy books, but I have a Facebook page, Bill Warner, author, and I have a YouTube channel, Political Islam. But for my books, you go to my webpage or Amazon. And uh, by, by the way, it, it's very ironic that I have any books for sale at all. If you'd have told me when I was a young man that I would one day run a publishing company and be a writer, I'd go, you're crazy. That's the last thing in the world I want to do. But the last thing I'm doing in my life is to do what I thought I would never do. <laughs> well, I, I can be honest with you. I, I've just written um, a piece for Baroness Cox with regards to Sharia because obviously I've dealt with a lot of women who have suffered Sharia in this country. Um, and she wanted a, a perspective because Marias, which is Mothers Against Radical Islam and Sharia, which is my organisation, gives support to Muslim women and girls who have been groomed, including apostates. So I, I give a, a wide range of support to give people someone to talk to, or if I need to get them into a safe house, I, I get them into a safe house. Um, I've even one, one particular girl we, we managed between as I was pushing out a GoFundMe page to raise £1,400 to get her moved from where she was living so that she wasn't continuously being threatened, which she was. Um, and I've just written that. And if somebody said to me five years ago, you'll be sitting with Dr. Bill Warner and having um, the ability to even do what we're doing now and, and basically running an online radio show, I would have actually said, seriously, you don't know me. I prefer to just go out, have a good time, have a drink, come home, fall down, and that's me done for the night. So I think that we've all, we're all making journeys, and everybody's journey is different. Your journey is just educational. Mm -hmm. Mine is just more, I suppose for me, my, I'm the one getting educated by people like you. And I hope that everybody who's out there does, um, does understand that y you are educating them. I've just been given a question, actually. Okay. Um, to ask you, does he see a connection between Black Lives Matters and Panthers and the Muslim Brotherhood in the USA? Yes, and it's been very clear. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood immediately grafted themselves onto the Black Lives Matter. Uh, 
I mean, this is not uh, this is a factual statement. I don't think there's anyone who would disagree with it. So the answer is yes. Yeah, I think we we kind of had sort of worked that one out as well for ourselves. And and the sad thing is, I kind of think all lives should matter. <clears throat> Unfortunately, yes. apparently, my life matters a little less than. an Islamic life (laughs) it seems and your life matters a little less if you go by the our elite and it does seem that you are right the higher up the chain you are of wealth the less you seem to know so I'd I'd rather stay poor and educated than rich and a dumb son of a bitch if I'm honest And everybody is laughing because he gets where I'm coming from. So I'm really quite pleased about it. Because it's true. You don't have to have gone to university. Because the more you go to university, the more you're churning out this liberal safe space mentality. In America, let me, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. And there's a university here, which I used to be proud that I went to, called Vanderbilt University. At Vanderbilt University, a poll was taken of the political views of the professors. Ninety percent of the polo- of the professors in the liberal arts department declared themselves to be left of center in some version. The only ones who weren't left of center as a progressive or a liberal, and I don't know if these terms translate into British political language at all. I don't know. Were those who were in sci- who were in studies like accounting, chemistry, or physics or math. But all of those who are going to teach you history, all of those who are going to teach you economics, all of those who are going to do all these things, were all of only one stripe, only one persuasion, left of center. Now, what kind of honest intellectual dialogue are you going to have? In America, the universities no longer teach critical thought. Instead, what they teach is authoritative thought, and it's a process of indoctrination. Let me tell you a story that comes from Europe in the early days of the universities. This is a, a story at school. They were teaching in a, the students on how to determine what was right and what was wrong. And the question was, Galen, who is an author who wrote mainly medical books, says that a horse has yay many teeth. Aristotle gave a different number for how many teeth a horse has. Now the purpose of the lecture was how to determine the truth. And the way you determine the truth, according to the professor, was that who was the greatest man and the greatest scholar? Well, Aristotle was a greater scholar than Galen, therefore his number for the horse's teeth is the right number. A student in the class went outside the classroom, went to a horse that was tied up, and counted its teeth. Came back and told the class how many teeth the horse had. The professor beat the student, and the students, other students in the room mocked and ridiculed him and hooted and hollered at him. This is authoritative knowledge. What he offered instead was fact-based reasoning. Well, the universities move from ideological indoctrination to fact-based reasoning. But now then the circle, the pendulum is swinging back, and the universities in America no longer teach fact-based reasoning. You're not allowed to bring up, there are whole subjects which are not allowed to be discussed. In America, the universities now become centers of ideological indoctrination. They do not allow critical thought. So how do we, how do we now challenge that as working class men and women I mean obviously as you can see England roared like a lion when it came to the Brexit and as I said I I genuinely believe when they talk about immigration it's somewhat 
they're frightened when the TV cameras go and say, well, you know, you're, why does immigration worry? Oh, well, you know, they won't actually say, well, actually, it's only immigration coming from Islamic countries that scare the living daylights out of me. And there's this fear of saying that you're afraid. And that's perhaps a slight English thing as well, a bit of stiff upper lip and all that, you know, what, 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 and everything's fine, when really it isn't. So if you could advise the UK and say this is what you need to do to tackle and combat the problems that you've got right now, what would your advice be? Well, I'm afraid you have to take your situation into your own hands. We cannot wait for those who are supposed to protect us and for those who guide us to do the work because they have become corrupt themselves. So we need to establish small revolutions, if you will, revolutions of thought and thinking amongst our friends and family first. Then we have other people who are brave enough to put, create organizations to stand for the truth. We are in a situation where we must at least have, I'll call them revolutions, which may be an overstatement of term, but nevertheless it does have that quality. Well, I think we have to, we can't give in to despair, we have to win, or at least we have to fight, die trying at least to do that. So my thing is for you to recognize that things are not right. What we thought was right is now wrong, and that we have to take it into our own hands to do something ourselves. We need to be factual, we don't need to be hateful, we need to have compassion and care, and so those are the qualities we must manifest, but we must also advocate for truth and reality. And we must say to those who want to shut us up, no, I will not be quiet, I will speak. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm with you. And I don't think it necessarily always has to be about mass, I mean, sooner or later, you know that mass demonstration will come round. But I don't always think that that is the way forward. I think that sometimes even these conversations, doing these shows, talking about it, having the conversation, not being afraid of saying what you really think. And it's got nothing about trying to offend somebody. It has everything with being honest with yourself honest with the people you're talking to and I, I genuinely am a, a firm believer in honesty is the best policy and sometimes those truths reach a little bit further hence why and I actually think there are far more apostates now than people could ever have imagined and half of them if we knew who they were which we can't because obviously they would end I mean people that I've I help now they can't walk away for several reasons. One, their families will be targeted because their families will be punished for them being apostates. They will be punished. They'll be ousted from their community. The fear of being alone and not included in that community scares the life out of them. I'm a little bit tired of the whole community thing. You know, Muslim community, Hindu community, Sikh community. This is one country. It should be one community, regardless of skin, creed or colour, we should be one community and we're not anymore. And I would want to break those barriers down. Well, what you're saying is, remember I told you the motto of America used to be e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And that's what you're saying. Out of many peoples, one community. I'm going to have to draw this to a close because you are, my it's darling. quarter of five where I am and I have a, someplace I have to be at five o'clock. But I've enjoyed our conversation. I love my conversations with you and I look forward to the next one and the next one and the next one and keep educating the world because the world needs you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You're most welcome, darling. You take care. So there you go. I'm sorry if that wasn't perfect for a first attempt, but all I can say is what a fantastic man. 
absolutely love the guy to pieces. I think he's doing an amazing job.